Live. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this edition of the Women of Revolution. of the Revolution. My name is Susan Bonner. I'm here with Deb. She's a self-taught historian, and we, we find all types of women that had have involvement with the Revolutionary War because nobody else is talking about it. That could go from someone who just writes poetry, to someone who fights in the battles, to someone who sees uh, the truth, to someone who is politically connected. We have just found so many lovely ladies, um, and that Deb just found more. So that's a good thing. Yeah, they, they definitely participated. Now, we are going to go to the... Northern Theater, because we're going to be going to New Hampshire, and it's it's kind of interesting because we did Vermont as well, but Vermont was a completely loyalist colony, and then as you will see, New Hampshire was created based on their charter, which said they were always going to be loyal to the crown, but they decided that they weren't going to be. Um, also, this is. Um, uh, I, well, if I do the history of uh, New Hampshire, you'll see. It was, it's unique, just like all the other colonies were. All right, so do you want to add anything? No, we're going to do the signers of the Declaration of Independence Wives, as, in case you're just tuning in. Um, there were three signers from New Hampshire, and we will be introducing you to their wives. Because and some of the stuff... Um, some of the ladies we have a lot of information on us, and some of the ladies we don't, some of the wives. So um, just bear with us because we have to get out as much as we can. But I do want to say there was more bombing. Yes, in Manchester there was just a, uh, another explosion. At, there was a concert at um, Ariana Arena or Stadium. Uh, um, I don't have the, the, the news up right now, but uh, there's been fatalities and wounded, and it's just a mess. Uh, it just happened um, about 20, 20 minutes ago or so, half an hour ago. All right. I just wanted to bring that up because we live in horrible times. All right. So let's get to New Hampshire history. I'm going to be going between three different articles. Uh, this one is NH.gov. And early historians record that in 1623, under the authority of an English land grant captain, John Mason, in conjunction with several others, sent David Thompson, a Scotsman, and Edward and Thomas Hilton, fish merchants of London, with a number of other people and two divisions, to establish a fishing colony in what is now New Hampshire, at the mouth of the Pesquoi. The Catequa River. One of these divisions under Thompson settled near the river's mouth at a place they called Little Harbor or Cataway, where they erected salt-drawing fish racks and a factory of stone house or stone house. The other division under the Hilton brothers set up their fishing stations on a neck of land eight miles above, which they called Northam, 
afterwards named Dover. Nine years before that, Captain John Smith of England and later Virginia, sailing along the New York England coast, and inspired by the charm of our summer shores and the solitude of our countryside, wrote back to his countrymen that there should be no landlord to rack us with a high rent or extort fines to consume us. Here, every man may be a master of his own labor and land in a short time. The sea there is the strangest pond I have ever saw. What sport doth yield a more pleasant consent and less hurt or charge with than angling with a hook and crossing the sweet air from isle to isle over the silent streams of a calm sea. My sister lives in New Hampshire, and I moved to Montana. Oh, gosh. Came in 2012, oh, no, 2002. Um, I've been here about 12 years, but I went back to visit her after my mom died. And this is the last time I saw the ocean, and I grew up on Long Island. So, I'm <laughs> landlocked. It's kind of weird. Yeah. But their beaches were still really nice. They didn't get ruined yet. But that was many years ago, so I don't even know. Uh, da, 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 da. This is a very important point. Thus, the settlement of New Hampshire did not happen because those who came here were persecuted out of England. The occasion, which is one of the great events in the annals of the English pride, was planned with much care and earnestness by the English Crown and the English Parliament. So. The settlement of New Hampshire did not happen because of those who came here and were persecuted. This was actually a colony that was created by the Parliament and the King, and this is the only this is the only colony that was like that, right? Yes. It was a business enterprise. Uh, right. Um. Here, James I began a colonization project which not only provided ships and provisions, but free land bestowed with but one important condition, that it remained always subject to English sovereignty. So it remained until the War of the Revolution. Smith first named it North Virginia, but King James later revised this into New England. To the map was added the name Portsmouth, taken from the English town where Captain John Mason was commander of the fort. And the new name, New Hampshire, is that of his only English colony county of Hampshire. All right, so I am going to go to my next article. Okay, let's see. Uh, oh, here it is. Okay. Um, yeah. um, I have to scroll down because all the other stuff is, like, redundant. Okay, so in 1638, a settlement was made at Exeter between the Catapacqua and Merrimack Rivers by John Wheelwright, the brother-in-law of Mrs. Hutchinson, who had been banished from Massachusetts. These little towns had come into existence, each independent of the others. None of them had a stable government, and there was constant discord and turbulence. In 1639, the towns formed an agreement to unite, but as Massachusetts claimed this territory, the towns at length agreed to come under her jurisdiction. Notice the her. <laughs> the union was formed in 1641, 
the people of the settlements retaining liberty to manage their own town affairs, and each town was permitted to send a deputy to the general court at Boston. New Hampshire continued to be part of Massachusetts until 1679, when the king separated them. He joined them again in 1686, but they were finally separated in 1691, and New Hampshire again became a royal providence, president council being adopted by the crown, appointed by the crown Sorry. Why am I straining my eyes? <laughs> to make it bigger. Um, he joined them again in, 18, in 1686, but they were finally separated in 1691. And New Hampshire again became a royal providence. The president and council being appointed by the crown and the assembly elected by the people. Now, this is this is very interesting because it started out as see, when we we were developing and colonizing all these um, lands. We no matter what we had to get permission from the crown, right? Yeah. So Massachusetts petitioned the crown to take over New Hampshire. But then the crown said, "Well, wait a minute. This is my one. This is like my major cash cow, because they didn't come here on their own volition. They came here strictly under the orders of the king, and that's why he separated them again, because he wanted total control over them. Because already the colonies were starting to, they already had their own constitutions. They were making up their own um, government, and he they saw that they were kind of losing control of the colonies." So they wanted at least this colony, you know, to stay with them, and that's why he put them back together. <clears throat> um, okay, so how they did it was that the president and council was appointed by the crown, and the assembly was elected by the people. Until 1741, however, the governor was but a lieutenant under the supervision of the governor of Massachusetts. New Hampshire grew very slowly for many years. The chief cause of this was the fact that the heirs of Mason claimed the right to the land and their infinite disputes and litigations with the settlers concerned the land titles propelled home seekers. At last, after 100 years of controversy, the Mason's heirs were satisfied by the purchase of their claims in 1749. In 1719, a colony of Scotch-Irish immigrants settled in New Hampshire and founded the town of Londonbury, so named from the city in Ireland from which they came. These people were thrifty, and they soon began an industry which they had learned in Ireland, the raising of flax and manufacturing of living goods. The goods made by means of the old spinning wheel in these humble cabins in the forest became famous over all New England and even in the mother country. Okay, now I go to my last one. And this is, um, I can't see it, it's my screen so funky. Okay, so New Hampshire during the Revolution. New Hampshire did not play a major role during the Revolution besides supplying militia and, and the raid on Fort William and Mary in 1774 which is the only battle fought in Hampshire before and during the war. One other important event would be that Paul Revere rode through New Hampshire on his way to warn the rest of the colonies. The raid on Fort Mary and William was very important because it gave the American army much-needed supply of gunpowder. Now, this is significant as well 
I want to get your take on a little bit. Um, in order for them to get their lands, New Hampshire had to pledge total allegiance to the crown. But in 1774, before the, the infamous shot, they were already rebelling against the king. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the whole the the colonies it all really started in the the 60s, 1760s after the taxes were levied to uh um refill the coffers of the king after the French and Indian War. That's what people they they a lot of people don't realize that Massachusetts was making noises, loud noises in the 60s. Especially uh, Sam Adams. Although this was not the start of the revolution for the colonies, it can be seen as the start of the revolution for the colony of New Hampshire. Numbers of men were in the Americans, in the Americans, favored by 400 to six. There were only a few shots fired during the raid, but no one was injured or killed. Once the militia had possession of the 97 barrels of gunpowder. It was distributed to towns around New Hampshire. After the raid, the militia surrounded the state house and Governor Wentworth and demanded information on possible reinforcements. Paul Revere rode to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, to warn the town of an imminent attack by British forces. And I wanted to get into um, what this fort was, because it was important. So, Fort William and Harry. Uh, William and Harry. <laughs> unique, 13 unique rebellions against British authority committed in America prior, prior to April 1970-75. Four months before the bloodshed at Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts, New Hampshire's rebellion crossed the line into an overt insurrection. On December 14, 1774, Patriots faced gunfire to storm the colony's provincial arsenal. A fort in the British Empire system of American defenses, manned by soldiers who reported to royal governor appointed directly by the crown. In the violent course of their assault, the raiders gave three cheers, hauled down the British flag, and made off with about 100 barrels of gunpowder. It was mainly, it was plainly treason, and New Hampshire's Friends of Liberty added to their crime the following evening. On December 15, 1774, they began again, they again raided the fort. This time, absconding, absconding with small arms, miscellaneous military supplies, and above all, 16 cannon clearly marked as the property of the king. That's a lot to carry, Deb. Mm-hmm. Especially the damn cannon. Oh, yeah. All right. So that's the history of the women's Husbands that going to slide the Declaration of Independence from New Hampshire, and now you got that picture, and we have to get into what kinds of things women did back in the day in New Hampshire, and Deb has that. Yeah, this is from the SeacoastNH.com website. Um, and this was about the critical roles of New Hampshire women in the Revolutionary Era. 
When the dread cry, the British are out, rang throughout the countryside after the fighting at Lexington and Concord, patriotic women immediately set to work getting their men ready to leave for battle. They had no idea that long years of loneliness, sacrifice, and hard work lay ahead. They saw that a job had to be done and went at it with their usual vigor. On the very day that news of fighting came to Antrim, nearly all the men left for Cambridge. The women of the town had to work all night preparing food and clothing to be taken next day to husbands and sons. Perhaps it was fortunate that Colonel Stark already had his quota for the 1st New Hampshire Regiment by the time the Antrim men arrived at Winter Hill, for he promptly sent them home to finish planting their crops. Matthew Patton, judge of probate and justice of the peace in Bedford, wrote in his diary that after receiving the news, his oldest son, John, was determined to fight and added, Our girls sit up all night baking bread and fitting things for him and John Dobbin. Abigail Philly, butler, a wife of the keeper of Butler Tavern in Nottingham, with the help of her daughters, carted, spun, wove, and sewed through the night so that her husband and two sons would have enough clothes for their march toward Cambridge, which began at four in the morning. Mrs. Thomas Morrison's husband, son, and hired man left on foot from Peterborough, leading a horse that carried saddlebags stuffed with her freshly baked bread and a good supply of pork. The wife of Captain Levi Spalding of Lynborough helped make paper cartridges for the 60 men in his company to take with them on their journey. Polly Locke of New Ipswich, later known as New Hampshire's champion weaver, was determined that her 16-year-old brother, John, should have the new pantaloons he needed in order to set out for military service. Legend says she cut fleeces from a white sheep and a black sheep, cleansed and carded the wool, spun the yarn, washed, and then dried it. Within 40 hours from the time she began to shear the sheep, John was on his way, suitably dressed for soldiering. In any season, there was much to be done on a New Hampshire farm, sowing and reaping crops, cutting and storing firewood, haying and butchering were normally tasks for men. Once the master of the household had gone to war, these jobs had to be taken care of by old men and inexperienced boys or left for the soldiers' leaves from military service. Women pitched in when they could. We finished husking our corn. Our women folks all helped us husk a little over 40 bushels, wrote Judge Patton on October 17, 1776, when Anna Sibley's husband went away to work on Fort Constitution in Portsmouth in the same year, Anna, pregnant with her third child, managed to hoe three acres of corn on the Sibley's burnover land in Hopkinton. After Captain James Aiken of Bedford enlisted in June 1775, his wife carried on the whole work of the farm, including the harvesting. She was assisted only by her children, the oldest of whom was 11. Alice Glidden, who had settled with her husband in Northfield in 1769, used his old flintlock gun to hunt game for the family table. She cut her own firewood, selling the trees herself, and used a team of steers to haul the logs home with only her young children to help. Most women would have agreed with Abigail Adams of Massachusetts, who said, I am willing to do my part. I believe I could gather corn and husk it, but I should make a poor figure at digging potatoes. Women had enough to do with maintaining their own kitchen garden, making soap and candles, spinning and weaving, preserving and baking food, and taking care of their large families. One soldier complained on leaving for war. 
The hay is not cut, corn not hoed, winter grain not sowed. No one is left to take care of six families. It was the mother, of course, who usually nursed the family through illnesses. The services of a midwife, spinster aunt, or grandmother were not always available. Women learned to endure suffering and death, but it must have been doubly hard to sit alone holding a child that was choking to death with diphtheria or burning with typhoid fever. The strong religious faith that had brought their forebears to this country sustained them. Sometimes a husband, son, or brother died in the action of the revolution with no word of his death for months afterwards. It was nearly a year before the Pattons learned of John's death in Canada from smallpox. Those away fighting, moreover, were not likely to learn of a tragedy at home. Mary Bartlett of Kingston wrote to her husband, Dr. Josiah Bartlett, who was serving in the Continental Congress in Philadelphia. Mrs. Tilton buried their only daughter, four or five years old. The father has gone to Canada. Heavy news for him. Mary's letters were filled with accounts of death and disease in Kingston and Exeter. She must have felt that Dr. Bartlett would be especially interested. Then, too, as a woman at home alone, she would want to confide in him all the things that were troubling her. Ezra has canker and scarlet fever, she wrote. Lois has pain in the head and sore throat. And in another letter, Sally was very sick with chosick or worms, better now. Less serious was the news that Miriam has been poorly, probably because she took a cold bath in the sea, or that Mary herself had suffered from sick headaches. Mail was a long time on the road between Kingston and Philadelphia. The Bartlett's must have worried each other with their complaints. Mary, who was expecting a child in December of 76, employed her husband in her letter of September 9th. Pray do come home before cold weather, as you know my circumstances will be difficult in the winter if I am alive. When Josiah wrote that he had frequent coughs and colds, his wife immediately dispatched a cordial made of cinnamon and saffron mixed with sugar and rum, and also a warm gown. By the time these comforts reached him, however, he had probably recovered. He advised Mary to hold his letters over the smoke a little before handling them too much as the smallpox is very frequent in the city. Even in Exeter, Mary wrote in 1778, two people had died of smallpox and 200 had been inoculated. Although Edward Jenner had not yet discovered a safe way to vaccinate against smallpox, people were willing to risk inoculating themselves with an unreliable serum obtained from human victims of the disease. 1778, Elizabeth Page Stark of Derryfield, which is now Manchester, whose husband always called her Molly, asked the general court for permission to inoculate her family and servants. The petition was denied, perhaps because she was a woman. When General Stark himself later sent a similar request, it was approved. The general is said to have brought home victims of smallpox, both his own men and prisoners of war, to be nursed back to health by Molly Stark. A lighter approach to this dread disease was that of the wealthy people of Portsmouth who chose to visit Shapely Island for their inoculations. There, after inoculation with a serum, they spent three or four weeks in quarantine as gaily as upon vacation at a fashionable watering place. Portsmouth women sometimes invited friends to take smallpox at their homes and stay until well enough to leave. There was no such levity in poorer homes where money for food, clothing, and medicines came in pitifully small amounts from men serving their country. Many women became wards of their communities with public funds being raised each year for their support. Northampton records show that on April 1, 1776, voters agreed in town meeting to take care of widow Abigail Marston and her four children. 
at an Exeter, Exeter town meeting on January 19th in 1778, it was voted that the selectmen be a committee to supply such families of the non-commissioned officers and private soldiers belonging to this town as now are or shall be engaged in continental service with such necessities of life as their circumstances require. Similar assistance was given to families of those who had died in the war. Town governments were not always so charitable. Spinster Sarah Rawlings, who had no visible means of support and no legal residence in Northampton, had been forcibly returned in 1774 to Greenland, her former home. Judge Patton noted on November 1st, I spent the day in framing a complaint for the selectmen to the Committee of Safety for Mrs. Hepper's casting her daughter Hannah's child on the town and a warrant to the constable to seize her goods to maintain the child and going with the constable and selectmen to seize the goods. In farming communities, private purses and public funds were drained by heavy taxes to support the war effort and by inflationary prices. During the siege of Boston, a soldier wrote to his wife, get two or three bushel of salt as quick as you can for it will be dear. Salt so essential for preserving meats rose during the war from 30 cents a bushel to almost $30. When Mary Bartlett complained to her husband that prices were extravagant, he advised, lay in a good stock of wood, buy hay or corn, will be cheaper now than next year. Then he warned her to save seed corn for the next year's planting. Women with special skills fared better than most. The demand for cloth for uniforms set many to work at their looms and wheels. A woman could spin from two to five skeins, about 120 yards a piece of wool or linen in a day, and receive five or six pence a skein. Martha Harris of Salem supported herself during the absence of her husband by weaving cloth to sell. Mary Thompson of Durham and her household made enough clothing to outfit an entire company in the Army. A widow was lucky if she had a chance to remarry, otherwise she faced the prospect of living on welfare unless she was skilled enough to work as seamstress or nurse. The income was minimal in either case. Mrs. Dealey came, wrote Judge Patton, on July 24, 1780-something, made two dresses for Betsy and Polly and fitted a pair of stays. Mrs. Dealey worked three days and was paid half a dollar, less a few shillings, which Mrs. Patton promised to pay when she had more cash on hand. Some women showed unusual competence in managing their husband's affairs. In Londonderry, Molly Reed, mother of five children, took entire charge of the farm during the eight years her husband, General George Reed, was in the Continental Army. She learned everything she could about crops and stock, asking and getting advice in the letters she exchanged with General Reed. She was highly praised by General John Stark, who once said, If there is one woman in New Hampshire fit for governor, it is Molly Reed. Abigail Reed of Fitzwilliam successfully took over the handling of family finances when her husband returned home from the war with his eyesight gone. Since the youngest of her nine children was nine years old when the revolution began, she could depend on their help in running the household. Molly Stark managed her large family in Dairyfield with the help of servants and her older children, but had to let the sawmill John Stark had established in 1760 lie idle. Not all wives of revolutionary soldiers stayed at home working and worrying. Those who could afford to travel and who had plenty of household help joined their husbands when possible. In a letter of February 26, 1776, Dr. Bartlett refers to Mary's forthcoming visit to Philadelphia. Such a journey would be quite an undertaking, and it is preserved that Mary, 
presumes that Mary would have stayed there for a few weeks to make the expense and effort worthwhile. There is a persistent and romantic legend that soon after John Stark left for the scene of fighting in Massachusetts, his wife Molly followed, carrying extra clothing and money. She is said to have ridden on horseback through the woods, guided only by spotted trees. It is unlikely that Molly, pregnant with her ninth child, would have started out on a journey of 60 miles in such a fashion. The wife of the newly elected colonel of the 1st New Hampshire Regiment would probably have driven in a high-wheeled chase over main roads, spending the night en route with relatives in Atkinson or at a respectable inn. Molly visited her husband several times at his headquarters at the Royal House in Medford. There she observed both British and American maneuvers from a third-story window high above the Mystic River. When hundreds of people rushed to rooftops and high ground to watch the Battle of Bunker Hill, Molly climbed Pasture Hill to see the smoke and flames rising above Charlestown and to listen to the sound of cannon fire, no doubt fearing for the life of her gallant husband. There are no accounts of wives at Ticonderoga, Albany, or Trenton, but they clearly were in their husband's thoughts. After a trip to Albany, Judge Patton wrote, brought back to Mrs. Newman a pair of silver shoe and knee buckles and $8, and to Lieutenant McCauley's wife $10 in cash. From Philadelphia, Dr. Bartlett sent chintz for three gowns for Mary and silver sleeve buttons for the children. While families of other communities were enduring hardships, those of Portsmouth and Exeter were enjoying a measure of prosperity thanks to the trading and shipbuilding activity in the coastal city and the location of the new inland capital. Long accustomed to fine silks and furnishings in elegant mansions, some women continued their luxurious living to the displeasure of those who were willing to sacrifice for the patriotic cause. The majority of housewives had given up imported tea after the tax controversy, taking what pleasure they could in liberty tea made of ribwort or other herbs. Mrs. Abigail Butler of Nottingham felt strongly about tea drinkers. According to a poetic account published a century later, she was so incensed when a traveler staying at Butler Tavern attempted to take a package of tea from his pocket that then she quickly she darted forward her plate of meat she let fall in one with one death stroke of the carver cut coat tails pocket and all threw them into the blazing fireplace before he had time to think, while she said in a voice triumphant, that tea you shall never drink. Another ardently patriotic group of men met in Portsmouth in the summer of 1777 to piece together an American flag for John Paul Jones' ship, the Ranger. A popular, le- <coughs> Excuse me. A popular legend says Mary Langdon, Carolyn Chandler, Augusta Pierce, and Dorothy Hall cut up their best gowns for the stars and stripes, while Mrs. Helen Seavey sacrificed the white silk dress in which she had only recently been married. New Hampshire was the only state in which no actual battles were fought, but throughout the state, women proved they were ready to defend themselves in their homes if necessary. Prudence Wright of Hollis led a group of women dressed in men's clothes in the capture of a local Tory who was found to be carrying dispatches to the enemy in his boots. When a false rumor of attack from the sea reached Greenland, Eleanor Johnson started out on the road to Rye with her musket, ready to meet the enemy. Colonial women had learned early how to handle firearms. When only 15, Molly Stark had used a musket to guard the fort built by her father, Captain Caleb Page, in Starkstown, while men were working in the field. Later, when the mother of several children, she is said to have shot a bear, a bear, bear, the animal bear, not the beer. 
Bears and even wolves were constant threats to rural families. Mrs. Mary Hall of Mason thought wolves were about to enter her cabin while her husband, Deacon Hall, was absent. With her children's help, she pushed every piece of furniture against the door and spent a sleepless night waiting for morning light to drive the animals away. Mary Bartlett, Molly Stark, Polly Locke, Molly Reed, and others showed what women were willing to do to support the efforts of their men at war. Their courage and capability made it possible for New Hampshire soldiers to fight for their country without fearing excessively for the safety of those at home. Mary Bartlett expressed their awareness of the gravity of the times when she wrote to her husband on July 6, 1776, I believe this year will decide the fate of America. And so with the help of the women of the revolution, it did. And this was originally published in New Hampshire Years of Revolution by Olive Tardif. So that just shows you that, you know, even though you don't uh, hear of the women often in, in, you know, if there's any movies about the Revolutionary War, it's always the women are, you know, staying at home, taking just taking care of the kids, and they never look busy, you know, they're just sitting around, and the kids are running around, but they they... They didn't have much time to sit. And they were pregnant most of the time. Yes, they were. Yeah. So, it's amazing. Some of the stuff that you just read overlap, and you actually have more women. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's a whole... A lot of them. I don't know how much more we could find because, you know, they were just... Uh, um, see, a lot of the, the trouble is um, a lot of the women that I find their names, but their um, their letters or their diaries are in private collections in, in, you know, the town's library or museum or something, and they haven't digitized them yet, so... Hopefully, you know, they'll be, as the years go on and the Internet, um, there'll be more and more of these uh, letters published. I mean, archives.gov has a lot. But, you know, these, but they're the, of course, they're the the famous people. These are just your regular um, townspeople. The only thing you hear about, is, you know, a sentence here or a sentence there or read about because, you know, like I said, there are papers. If there are letters in journals, a lot of them are in private collections. Not easily accessible (laughs) unless I wanted to tour the country town by town. Yeah, Yeah, but, I mean, despite that, we have got quite a few women. So... Without further ado, we're going to start with the signers of the Declaration of Independence, and I will tell you who they are. Okay, so the signers of the Declaration of Independence for New Hampshire is Joshua Bartlett, Matthew Thornton, which is going to get under my skin because I've been fighting with my neighbor who's last name Thornton for about seven years, and William Whipple. So there was only three. Massachusetts, they had... Wow, one, two, three, four, five. 
New Hampshire had three. And New Jersey, I'm scrolling down, has a lot too. So that's Joshua Bartlett, Matthew Thornton, and William Whipple. And we're going to start with Joshua Bartlett, who married Mary Bartlett. And Deb's going to highlight her. Okay. And this is from the womenhistoryblog.com, which God loves the, uh, the owner of this website. She, she's really helped us a lot. She's done a lot of research. Um, and we like to, we, we appreciate all that she's done. It's not only on women of the revolution that she has written about, uh, or whoever it is that owns, or about the author, yeah. Um, if you go to the womenhistoryblog.com, you can read about the author. She has all sorts of women, um, as well as famous children. So if you want to know about women throughout history, yeah, well, it's a good place to go. So Mary Bartlett, she was the wife of of Dr. Josiah Bartlett that we just heard about at the other uh, the website I just read about. But Mary Bartlett was born in 1730 in the town of Newton, New Hampshire, one of ten children. Her father, Joseph Bartlett, had been made captive by the French and Indians in 1707 and carried to Canada and held there for four years. Mary Bartlett grew into a lady of excellent character. Josiah Bartlett was born on November 21, 1729, to shoemakers Stephen and Hannah Webster Bartlett in Amesbury, Massachusetts. He was their fifth child and fourth son. He attended the common schools, but with uncommon success. By the age of 16, he had built a foundation in Latin and learned some Greek. In 1745, Josiah began to study medicine, working in the office of Dr. James Ordway of Ansbury, and used the libraries of Dr. Ordway in neighboring towns to supplement his medical knowledge. Bartlett gained recognition locally by successfully treating diphtheria patients with a new procedure, Peruvian bark, also known as quinine, and by the application of cooling liquids to temper fever, which was just totally opposite what they did at the time. What they did was to keep you from anything cold, cooling, and they shut the windows. They oh, they did all sorts of really today bizarre things. But anyway, okay, wait. Let me get into the quinine. Okay. Um. Spark. I just want to see. I might not get into the whole thing. All right. So now it's a just you know. I mean, it goes into all sorts of stuff about know. you know. It's a it's an interesting story about how it came to be. Okay. So the Chinchoka, Chinchona, Chinchona, Chinchona. A large shrub, shrub or small tree is indigenous to South America. In the 19th century, it could be found along the west coast from Venezuela in the north to Bolivia in the south. Its bark, also known as Peruvian bark or Jesuit bark, is renowned for its medical properties. It produces a number of alkaloids, namely... Chinchonin. Chinchonin. Chinchondine. <laughs> Quinine, quinine, and quinamere. You know, as, even as a nurse, Deb, I yeah, always I know. Have, <laughs> even as a nurse, man, I could spell it. I could tell you mm-hmm. what it is, the side effects, but I could not pronounce it. 
That's why I couldn't be a doctor because I couldn't pronounce half these words <laughs> or a third or, you know, two-thirds of them. Anyway. By, by far the most valuable of these is quinine, a drug used to treat malaria, which according to a report of the commissions of medical officers of the government in India, possesses more than any other can be named in not confidence of medical practitioners in India. All the alkaloids, with the exception of sulfate of tricolon, are known for their free, free by the free fungal, fungal, fungal properties. <laughs> I looked some of these up. You see. <laughs> yeah, I should have done that too. Um, let's see. Um. Uh, okay, so quinine had the best um, alkaloids. As a result of the popularity of quinine, however, these have, according to T.C. Owen in his Planters Manual, fallen into unmerited neglect. Um, okay, we already said it was an anti-malarial. Um, that's about it. I just wanted an overview. Yeah. Uh, I thought uh, the preach and chona treatments was very interesting what they used to do <laughs> to treat people before they discovered Peruvian bark. <laughs> All right, well I'll read that then. Until the appearance of quinine in Europe during the mid seventeenth century, medical practitioners treated victims of fevers and malaria in particular, using primitive methods such as limb amputation, purging, bloodletting, the administration of herbs, rest, massage, hydrotherapy, and a controlled diet. Those last things are that's good. More unconventional methods, including the wearing of amulets, the application of split pickled herrings to the feet, placing <laughs> the fourth book of the Iliad under a patient's bed, throwing a patient headfirst into a bush with the hope he will get out quickly enough to leave his fever behind, and the embrace of a bald headed Brahmin widow at dawn. Okay, then. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, All right. And they use cobwebs, too. Yes. Spiders and cobwebs. Yeah. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. As late as 1886. (laughs) Oh, thank God for, you know, um, modern medicine. Yeah. They're still practicing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we have discovered this. <laughs> I really yeah. want split herring, pickled herring on my feet. <laughs> oh, dear. Mm. Yeah, okay. So <laughs> that was, that's what he do. Oh. Okay. So getting back to Mary Bartlett, who, thank God, that her husband <laughs> took on diphtheria using Peruvian bark instead of split herring. Um, and he became renowned for relying on observation and experimentation in the diagnosis and treatment of his patients. You have to remember, this is a very new concept um, that, you know, when we did the, the history of the medic- medicine that was practiced, in the 18th century, it was um, it was 
only towards uh, the, the well, the, really the beginning of the 19th century that um, that the physicians started to actually observe and um, make note of and analyze what was happening with their patients because they had been putting split pickled herring on their feet. <laughs> that just cracks me up. I'm sorry. But anyways, it wasn't until, you know, the eighteen or the eighteen hundreds that they really became so he was ahead of his time and and uh we're very grateful for him being ahead of his time. In seventeen fifty, before turning twenty one, Josiah moved ten miles north to Kingston, New Hampshire and began his medical practice. By hard work, determination, and luck, became a man of property and influence. Kingston at that time was a frontier settlement of only a few hundred families. If a man could stitch wounds, set bones, and treat fevers, he was welcome, even without formal educational credentials. As the only doctor in this part of the county, Josiah's practice prospered, and he purchased land and added a farm to his credit. I imagine he was a very compassionate man, too as well as very intelligent. He, you know, it just sounded like he, uh, yeah, I, and you would have liked to have known him. On January 15, 1754, Mary married Dr. Josiah Bartlett, her first cousin. Mary was then 24, year, 24 years old, an amiable girl, and well-educated for the time. For the next 10 years, Mary's life was that of the wife of a pop, popular and prosperous young country doctor. They would remain a devoted couple until her death in 1789. Dr. Bartlett had a large family and built a large home in Kingston. He was democratic, kindly, and fast-growing in the esteem of his fellow citizens. Twelve children were born to Dr. and Mrs. Bartlett, of whom eight grew to maturity. Mary, Lois, Miriam, Rhoda, Hannah, unfortunately, who died as an infant, and uh, Levi, Josiah, and he uh, died that same year. And then the second Josiah, Ezra, Sarah, Hannah, um, she also died as an infant, and a child that was never registered. Three sons, Levi, Josiah, and Ezra, followed in their father's footsteps and became eminent physicians, and all three of them took considerable interest in public affairs and held positions of honor and responsibilities. Mary Bartlett had a, left us a priceless heritage and letters that have been carefully preserved. Unusually well-educated for the times, Mary wrote regularly to Dr. Bartlett while he was attending the Continental Congress in Philadelphia in 75 and 76. Her letters show that she not only wanted to keep her husband uh, to ask his advice. You can tell the folks who tried to find these letters. Yeah, I, I didn't really um, put that much time into it, unfortunately, um, because my computer had developed a hitch and it's glitch or a glitch and it's hitch or something. So I didn't really have time to, to, to delve into it. But uh, we can, um, I'm sure uh, if you um, go over to archives.gov, um, maybe we could find some. And, you know, if we, I'll see if I can while we're talking about other things. Um but with Josiah gone, there was no medical help available for emergencies, and Mary expressed her worries about the children and about her own health. Her letters are full of accounts of the children's ailments, Sally's colic or worms, Ezra, 
Ezra's canker and scarlet fever, Rhoda's fainting spells, Lois's pain in head and sore throat. Miriam, she wrote on September 24th, has been poorly, probably because she took a cold bath in the sea and added that dysentery was very prevalent. Oh, gosh. Mary also reported on her own sick headaches and on September 9, 1776, begged concerning her pregnancy, pray do come home before cold weather, as you know, my circumstances will be difficult in the winter if I am alive, but both uh, letters often took more than four months to reach their destination. I mean, they would get these letters four months later, and and they're wondering, you know, (laughs) is she still alive? It just must have been horrible. With the Internet today, the young people, you know, if they don't hear from somebody in two hours, they get worried. Um, Because Dr. Bartlett was the family physician to many in Kingston and surrounding villages, she often reported to him on the condition of his patients and of illnesses and deaths in the community. No doubt Mary's letters alarmed Josiah as much as his upset her. When he complained of his frequent colds and coughs, she immediately dispatched by stagecoach a warm gown and a cordial made of rum with cinnamon, saffron, and sugar. That sounds really good. By the time such remedies would have reached him, he must have been completely recovered. Um, it was stated in the last article that we read. Mary supervised the work on a farm that covered many acres and ran a large household that included several servants. The family was dependent on the produce raised on the property, and Mary was faced daily with decisions about crops, livestock, money manners, and child care, spinning, weaving, making clothing, preparing meals over a fireplace, and preserving foods for the winter kept Mary and household constantly busy. You see, these women... Now, weren't like the uh, Hollywood plantation ladies who sat out on the porch fanning themselves and, you know, drinking cordials and, uh, you know, they're visiting from uh, all these gentlemen callers. No, 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 these women worked and they were pregnant and or they had just given birth. And I mean, you had to get up and get going. It was just incredible. In her letters, Mary told Josiah about swarms of flies and worms eating the corn, about sharp lightning and thunder, and about a frost on May 30th that damaged apple trees, beans, pumpkins, and cucumbers. I mean, you think your whole food supply could be wiped out in, you know, a day. It's just, you never knew. She sometimes complained that the hired men were not working well under her direction, although Billy and Peter managed pretty well, and the men folk had done the hilling, Okay, let me interrupt you a minute, because you and I, we live, uh, well, I live in the middle of nowhere, but you live really rural. And we, when we first came up here, because I'm putting this in perspective, I'm telling, I will not get, the ship is going to go forward. Um, and we, we were so happy that we could plant a garden again, because when we were in Florida, we had like a quarter acre garden. Mm-hmm. And we didn't have anything, you know, except for, you know, it was, it was easy to grow it was easy, but it was hard because if you didn't get something in, and this has to go with these ladies too, and that has to go with the statement that that gentleman made earlier, you know, that's going off to war. There's nothing that hasn't been harvested. That hasn't been harvested because I was in North Florida, and if you didn't get things in by March, you could forget about it because if, if it was not heat hardy, mm-hmm. it was loose. Okay? Yep. You had to contend with all kinds of bugs down there. Yep. So the bottom line was, if you 
couldn't grow it, you could go buy it. Yes, yes, you can go to the grocery store. These women, these women, I mean, if the community, I mean, back then the community helped out, you know, a word was spoken to the the reverend or, you know, whoever was, um, you know, whatever church they had there, and the word was put out that so-and-so needed, you know, some some uh, food, and, and they did. You You always... You didn't go visiting without taking something, and especially if you knew that the people were having a hard time, like, you know, something got their harvest, you you shared more so. Um, But during the war, though, uh, with the prices going up like they did, I mean, just for the basics, you know, sugar and and, uh, flour, you know, things that, that you might have had come in, you know, that you bought, the prices were so high from the, you know, the price gouging that went on. And, and, you know, there's not much. The price goes up. So, you know, everything was going to the armies on both sides. You know, so you really had, I mean, it was like living on the edge all the time. Well, now we move to a northern climate. Just to put this also in perspective. So I had to have everything in by March and harvested at least by April or May. Mm-hmm. And then you start putting stuff up or just put it in storage. Certain things could go over the rest of the summer, but it's like peppers. They they, they love the heat. Now I, I am in a different environment. It's very cold. You can't get anything in the ground mm-hmm. until after June. Right. And I had a eighth of an acre garden in Basin, and the growing season was June to August, and then that was it. Yeah. Maybe get some stuff going in September. Again, showing that if everything happens, and up here, everything eats our plants. We have prairie dogs up here. They love our food. We try everything to get them out of the garden. They bird their way in. You have to have raised beds, and you have the same problem. But, see, these people didn't have the industry back then to have raised beds, so they're relying on what you and I used to rely on and plant it in the ground. Right. Because you had, you had, you said a couple of years ago, I'm done. I need this. The only way I'm having anything else is I'm raised beds, right? Yeah, because the bunnies would burrow, you know, in under the fence, and the deer would, you know, they'd eat anything. And then we had a groundhog, you know, or a woodchuck, depending on what part of the country you're from, um, you know. And and it's really, it, it is hard. And this year, God, it's been such a weird spring. We had like. Beautiful weather in April. Everybody put in their little gardens and, um, or not so little gardens, and then it, it it got cold, really cold. It went down into the 30s, and, of course, that's the frost, and that's not good for seedlings, and you have to cover up your plants and hope to God that they make it through. Then we had hail and all sorts of things. So, um, you know, and, and this is, you know, these these are kitchen gardens. You know, people just like to have their own their own produce. Um, it's not for, you know, selling. And we do have the farmers who, who grow corn and, and other things around here, but it's it's mostly cattle country, you know, cows, um, for butchering. And so it's like you never know. You don't know what's going to happen. And, and it, it, it just can get wiped out in, in one storm. Right, and just 
you have to deal with this on a larger scale. Yes. I mean, they had acres. If they didn't put it up, that's it. That was it. Yeah. You put them into your root cellar, and by the time spring came, you were eating pretty grody-looking, you know, root vegetables and things. Well, you bring up also is that... Yeah. You're really looking forward to spring greens. <laughs> well, and as you said, the war just strained all of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, New Hampshire, of course, um, didn't have, uh, you know, the troops like in the the more southern um, state uh, colonies where the, the the damn British army kept marching up and down and over and, uh, you know, back and again, and, and same with George Washington, because they were like locusts coming through the communities and took everything they could get their hands on because Congress didn't have the money to pay for for food and clothing and stuff. And so, you know, they, they like they say, an army marches on its stomach and, and uh you know, they had to take what they could find. Oh. Well, I'm bringing this up because I'm so sick of everyone saying that these people were wealthy white men. This this gentleman was a country doctor, for Christ's sake. Yeah, but he was, he was fortunate. I mean, he worked hard. He was, you know, very, very intelligent. Um, and, and he became prosperous. And she had servants. Now, the, the, the frontier people that were farming, um, you know, the, the poor, the, the less advantaged, you know, like they were just farmers and they lived off their land. You know, they didn't fare as well and, and the woman didn't, ha- she had her children and maybe a, a hired man or two at the most. But, I mean, you know, Mary was lucky. She had servants, but um, a lot of the women didn't. Yep. So. All right. Because um, this is, um, ladies and gentlemen, we do this all the time on our show because just reading an article and, and just like we tell, well, I tell everyone, just reading the Constitution doesn't mean anything. You need to know what the founders thought about everything they wrote. You can go to uncooperativeradio.com and have my show, The Uncooperative Radio, Women of the Revolution, and uh, Patriots Pub, PatriotsPub.us. Patriots Pub will show you what they were thinking about day to day in the Conve- Continental Convention because that's, we dissect here to show you the background of what, what's happening around these people and how it is affecting their lives, their children's lives. I mean, this is a big deal, and I'm afraid we're headed in the same direction. I just really am. Well, that's it. You can't understand history unless you read it in context. It doesn't make sense unless you read it in the context of the time. And that's what so many people, unfortunately, our schools are not teaching this anymore, nor are they teaching critical thinking. Um, they're teaching propaganda. But... It's really important to understand how they thought, what they thought, and why they thought it. Um, You know, you had to put in 
religion, politics, community, and education all, you know, as they were at the time, not as they are today, because that has nothing to do with 1700s. You had to realize, you had to, um, you know, know what was going on at the time and what these people were thinking and the social mores and, and uh, you know, the uh, day-to-day lives of these people because it was different. It was different um, than it is today. And you can't look at, this 18th century through the 21st century eyes. It just it does it doesn't make any sense. And unfortunately, a lot of the historians today are looking at everything through 21st century eyes instead of getting into the context of the time. They're missing a whole lot that way. It's a pet peeve of mine. <laughs> in case you couldn't tell. Okay. So, after she wrote to him, she, she would ask for advice and and uh, and tell him what was going on with the crops and everything, and he would reply with suggestions about saving seed corn, telling Peter to take good care of the cattle and not waste hay, hiring a good hand for nine months for, or a year, and buying a few barrels of apples so that there would be plenty of New Hampshire cider. Mary not only kept things going at home, she showed interest in the aims of the revolution. I believe this year will be, 1776, will decide the fate of America, she wrote to Josiah. In spite of her hardships, she felt herself to be a part of the new government that was taking shape under the direction of Josiah Bartlett and other representatives of the 13 colonies. In writing to his wife, Josiah advised her to hold the letters over the smoke a little before you handle them as the smallpox is very frequent. Yeah, we read about this. Um... Yes, that's when he sent the chintz and the silver sleeve buttons for the children. Uh, And he often asked whether the house had been finished. The first Bartlett home had been burned down in 1774 by Tories. Josiah Bartlett actively practiced medicine for 45 years, and this alone was a major accomplishment. He had no university training, but he was willing to consider what worked and avoided some traditional therapies such as bleeding, He lived during a time when medical practice was progressing rapidly. His wide reading, steady hands, and conscientious work made him an effective and successful physician. He founded and was the first president of the New Hampshire Medical Society. Um, The area around Kingston, New Hampshire, had an epidemic of a fever and canker simply called throat distemper around 1735. For adults, it was a serious illness, but for children, it was frequently fatal, especially among the very young. When this illness struck again in 1754, Dr. Bartlett simply tried doses of several available drugs and discovered that Peruvian bark would relieve symptoms long enough to allow recovery. His reputation was firmly secured. And then, let's see, in 1790, son Ezra graduated from Dartmouth College, and Dr. Bartlett delivered the commencement address and he was awarded an honorary doctor of medicine the same day his son earned that degree. In part, the honor was due to his signing of the Declaration of Independence and his new selection as president of New Hampshire. But in part, it was in recognition of his medical career. Three of Joseph, or Dr. Bartlett's son and seven of his grandsons became physicians. From 1774 until his death, 
the uh, Josiah Bartlett house was the home of Mary and Josiah. And uh, he goes on about his, uh, oh, he had quite a, um, he became active in the political affairs of Kingston. And he uh, he was in the Provincial Assembly in 1765. Um, and he supported general uh, colonial interests, raised the 7th Militia Regiment, and served as the liaison between the New Hampshire Provincial Assembly and Royal Governor Benning Wentworth during the Stamp Act controversy in 1765. Hoping to enlist Bartlett's support in the Royalist cause, Wentworth appointed him Justice of the Peace in 1767 and soon thereafter a Lieutenant Commander of the 7th Regiment. By 1774, the aggressions of the governor and the policy of the British ministry, which was, which he was trying to enforce, had grown burdensome to the people. Dr. Bartlett began to work with the revolutionary leaders of the other 12 colonies, and that year he was at the head of the Committee of Correspondence, which was in constant communication with Samuel Adams and other patriots of Massachusetts and Connecticut. And for those who don't know it, Samuel Adams is one of, one of my top five heroes. He's very near the top. You know, I love that he was self-taught. Mm-hmm. Yes. He didn't go to college. He didn't have... And that was before the Internet. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he read a lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, it it was... Um, that's what they did. They read a lot. My God, these, you know, the the... Oh, it's incredible. And today, to try to get somebody to read is like pulling teeth with the pliers. Um, Bartlett gave all of which he was capable to his town, his state, and the fledgling nation at great sacrifice to himself and his family. He was okay, wait, 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 I want you to keep going because I want you to keep going with this article because it's going to show what the Patriots... Just go ahead. Just keep going. (laughs) All right. I had to take a drink. He was elected as one of two delegates from New Hampshire to the First Continental Congress in Philadelphia in 1774. This brought down upon him the wrath of Governor Wentworth and his Tory adherents, and Bartlett received warning to to seize his pernicious in quotes. Soon thereafter, the Bartlett House was set on fire and burned to the ground, believed to have been set because of his patriotic activities. It wasn't always only the patriots that were burning down the Tories' houses. Dr. Bartlett declined the appointment to the Congress, moved his family out to the farmhouse, and began rebuilding their home immediately. In February 1775, Governor Wentworth dismissed him from all his appointed offices for his open resistance to the Crown. Two months later, when hostilities broke out at Lexington and Concord, Governor Wentworth fled from New Hampshire, boarding a British warship. I bet he did. Bartlett was selected as a delegate to the Second Continental Congress in 1775 and attended that session as well as those in 76. For a time, he was the only delegate attending from New Hampshire. Much of the work of the con- did he ever sleep? You have to wonder if he ever slept. Much of the work of the Congress was carried out in committees. The most important of these had a delegate from each state, which meant that Bartlett served on all of them. 
His hard work in these committees made him one of the most influential members of the Congress. And how often have you heard of him? Not very. Or his wife. Before the Congress convened in February 1776, Bartlett wrote, the time is now at hand when we shall see whether America has virtue enough to be free or not. After his continued letters home to the Assembly and the Committee of Safety in New Hampshire, William Whipple and Matthew Thornton had been added to the delegation in Philadelphia. And the question of declaring independence from Great Britain was officially brought up in 1776. Bartlett was the first to be asked and answered in the affirmative. On August 2nd, 1776, when the delegates signed the formal parchment copy of the Declaration of Independence, Dr. Bartlett's position made him the second to sign just after John Hancock, the president of the Congress. In June 1776, Bartlett was appointed by the Congress to the drafting committee of the Articles of Confederation, the country's first constitution, and was the first to vote for and sign it in 1778. Now, you have to remember, while he's doing all this, Mary's at home taking care of all the kids, the farm, and everything, with the help of, you know, her servants and everything. But still, um, she's on her own because they went for months. They didn't just go for the week and then go home on the weekend. He, He left and he stayed. In June 1776, he wrote about the committee, I have been for about a week on a committee of one member from each colony to form a confederation or charter of firm and everlasting union of all the united colonies. It is a matter of the greatest consequence and requires the greatest care in forming it. May God grant us wisdom to form a happy constitution as the happiness of America to all future generations depend on it. Although re-elected to the Continental Congress for 1777, Dr. Bartlett was unable to serve because he was exhausted by his arduous duties in that body during the previous years and by the difficulties of travel and following the Continental Congress. But while at home, he was still busy with public affairs. He joined General Stark in Vermont in 1777 to furnish New Hampshire troops and the wounded there with medical supplies and assistance after the American victory at the Battle of Bennington. He was re-elected to Congress in 78 and was the first to vote for and sign the completed Articles of Confederation. This was the last of his federal service as he felt he had neglected his family for too long. Leaving Philadelphia in 78, Bartlett began another career in New Hampshire. Though he had no legal training, he was appointed Bartlett Chief Justice of the Court of Common Pleas and served there from 79 until 1790. In 1782, he was appointed Justice of the New Hampshire Supreme Court and Chief Justice in 1788. That same year, he was a delegate to the New Hampshire Convention for the Adoption of the Constitution, serving part of the time as its chairman. He argued forcibly for ratification, which finally took place on June 21, 1788. During all this period, Mary Bartlett had been the closest friend and counselor to her husband, just as he had consulted her over his troubles as a young physician helping to bear the home burdens of his patients and personal friends in their little community. So now he consulted her about the greater troubles and dangers that menace the country. As always, she was a true partner. Mary's patriotism was as ardent as his and burned with a steady flame. And when their home lay in ruins and the family were driven to seek shelter and safety elsewhere, she took their numerous brood to their little farm, which she managed thereafter, leaving Josiah free to devote himself almost entirely to public affairs. 
Between his public duties, Dr. Bartlett found time to begin rebuilding a fine New England mansion on the site of their ruined home while he was at the Congress. Mary oversaw the construction of the house until it was finished, managed the farm, cared for nine children, gave birth to the tenth, Hannah. In all her letters to her husband and children, there is not one word of regret in his course or pity for herself, left alone to bear the double duties incumbent upon her. No complaints, only a spirit of loving, helpful sympathy in all his acts. Mary Bartlett died in their new home in Kingston on July 14, 1789, and her death was a great blow to her husband, who was at the time Chief Justice. Elected to the new U.S. Senate from New Hampshire in 1789, Bartlett declined to serve, probably due to his age, which was 60, and the weight of his legal duties. But in 1790, he was elected president of New Hampshire by an overwhelming majority. When the new state constitution took effect in 1792, he continued as the first governor. Um, let's see. Oh, there's ants everywhere in this house. Um Let's see. In 1794, Bartlett retired, sending his message to the legislature. I now find myself so, advar so far advanced in life that it will be expedient for me at the close of the session to retire from the cares and fatigues of public business to the repose of a private life with a grateful sense of the repeated marks of trust and confidence that my fellow citizens have reposed in me with my best wishes for the future peace and prosperity of the state. But he did not long survive his retirement from public life, and Dr. Josiah Bartlett died at his home in Kingston on May 19, 1795, at the age of 65. He is buried next to his wife, Mary, in the Plains Cemetery, also at Kingston. Josiah Bartlett was described by his contemporaries as a tall man of fine figure, affable but dignified in his manner, and very particular in his dress. He wore his auburn hair in a queue, a white sock at his throat, ruffles at his wrist, short clothes, silk clothes, low shoes with silver buckles. His mode of living was unpretentious. He rose to office and was, was re recommended by his fellow citizens, not less by the pro probity of his character than the force of his genius. But standing on his own merits, he passed through a succession of offices which he sustained with uncommon honor to himself and the duties which he discharged not only to the satisfaction of his fellow citizens, but with the highest benefit of to his country. We need men like that now, and women. Well, see, that's the thing. He never, he never expected it to be a career. He had a, he had a career. Yeah. I mean, these people just they wake, they wake up in the morning at the age of like. 15 to 25 and said, oh, I know what I want to be, politician for the rest of my life because look at how good it is. Well, that's it. And then a lot of them are groomed for that. The wealthier families groom their children to become um, congressmen and senators to then go on being judges if they're in the law or president if they're very ambitious. Because the Vennies are great. You can do whatever you damn well please. Well, you know, and I got to give credit, and, and it, I got two things to say. Number one, leave our uh, representatives and Congress critters alone, uh, senators, because you're taking the best, the only chances we have up there, and you're putting them in cabinet positions on us. They need to stay where they are and fight. Mm hmm. 
I mean, I'm so pissed off at Zinke, you have no idea. I voted for this man to go and represent me in the House of Representatives, and that means that what he took is power-hungry because, first of all, the Forest Service is unconstitutional, and he should know that. But why would he get himself involved in something that's unconstitutional? His role as representative was constitutional. And now we have here in the United, in the United Montana, state of Montana, being 14, 4A against a folk singer. A folk singer. Mm. He's a prog. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're all progs, but I mean, good Lord. Uh, we, we vote between a businessman and a folk singer. Yeah. And, and wherever he goes, anytime he makes a speech, he has his guitar around his neck. And he plays little D. I'm like, <laughs> it's so disgusting. Well, it is sad. It is sad. Um, and this is what, unfortunately, the the left has come to, um, you know, in trying to take their power back. And oh, the things that they want to do to this country. Um, and a folk singer makes quite a quite, you know, a lot of sense. <laughs> a lot of them were communists. Oh, I mean, really. It's like we just fast forward the local news because every time we see him speaking, he's got a stupid guitar around his damn neck. And well, so we sent James Paris, you know, or was it Paris he went to to sing a song of peace or something? I, I don't know. It's embarrassing. It is. It is. I mean, and this is... This is what amazes me, and the more we read about the people that founded this country, it's it's harder and harder to watch the news and to watch, you know, I watch C-SPAN to see the Senate and the, the House, um, and, and it, after reading the speeches of our founders and then listening to the dribble that comes out of the mouths of these horses' asses that are politicians today, they don't even know the Constitution or they don't care. And the things that they say are either, you know, they tend to be unconstitutional, you know, seven out of ten times. And, I mean, if you went back and cleaned out the bills that they have legislated throughout, you know, over the last century, we would clean up so much because none of it's constitutional. And if you know the Constitution... And you've studied it and the Bill of Rights and, and you know, the history and, and why our founders put everything, you know, word every word in these documents. You listen to the politicians today and you go, what country are you representing? What constitution are you defending? Because it certainly isn't ours. Or upholding, I mean. Because it's not ours. You don't seem to have a clue. So, anyways, ranting is over. Well, no, because you bring up a good point. These are the people that we need to to represent us and know they're not supposed to govern us, they're not supposed to lead us, they're just supposed to represent we the people, what we want them to do. They are not our, we, they are not our lords and masters, they are our servants, and yes. we need people that understand that and go kicking and screaming up there. We need for them to control our lives and tell us how to live. Number one, that's not in their job description, which is in the Constitution. 
All right. And now the second signer of the Constitution is Matthew Thornton. And I have Deb down for that as well. Yes. I like her name, Hannah Jack. was his wife's name. Hannah Jack Thornton. Again, this is from the Women History blog. God bless the, the author of this blog because she gives us so much information. Hannah Jack was born in 1742, daughter of Andrew and Mary Morrison, Jack of Chester, New Hampshire. Her family had emigrated from Londonderry, Ireland, but they were originally Scottish. Matthew Thornton was born in 1714 in Northern Ireland and was brought to this country at the age of three years by his parents, James and Elizabeth Jenkins Thornton. Their family is said to have been among the 120 families who in five small ships arrived in Boston, Massachusetts on August 17, 1718, and in the fall of that year went to Maine. Oh, they were brave. When their ship landed in Maine in midwinter, the passengers had no place to live, so they remained aboard ship. Oh, that was, must have been horrible. Six of the 56 signers belatedly penned their signatures. Eight of them were foreign-born and four were physicians. Matthew Thornton belongs in all three categories. The Thornton family settled first outside Brunswick, Maine, on a plot of land overlooking McCoyt Bay. In 1720, Brunswick was an outpost on the front line that stood between the aspirations and momentum of three major cultures, each of which was seeking its own territory. This triangle, uh, this triangle of struggle consisted of the English in Boston and Falmouth to the west, the Native American peoples to the north and in the interior, the French of Acadia, Nova Scotia, and the St. Lawrence to the east. In a way, this juxtaposition was prophetic, for Matthew Thornton's private and public life was to interface at different times with the struggles of all three contenders. The first such encounter was to occur five years later, on July 11, 1722. A band of Native American Indians attacked the town. James, Elizabeth, and Matthew fled from their burning home and escaped by canoe. Nearly escaping death, they made their way initially to Casco Bay, Maine. From there, they moved to Scots-Irish Settlement of Worcester, Massachusetts, which was a center of Scots-Irish Settlement in New England. There, young Matthew grew up and received a classical education at the Worcester Academy and became a doctor through the time-honored tradition of studying with an established physician. In 1740, he moved to Londonderry, New Hampshire, another Scots-Irish settlement where he opened a medical practice. The Scots-Irish Presbyterians of Worcester had been badly treated by the Massachusetts Congregationalists, and partly for that reason, Thornton and others of his nationality decided to live in Londonderry. Skilled as a physician, well-educated, and from the same European stock as most of the townspeople, Dr. Thornton soon became a leading member of the community. His success as a physician allowed him to purchase significant land holdings in Londonderry, and he soon made a name for himself in civil matters, too, serving in a variety of town and provincial offices as both a legislator and judge. He received from Governor Benning Wentworth commissions as a colonel in the Londonderry Militia and as the Justice of the Peace. In 1745, Matthew Thornton was still a bachelor and decided to volunteer his services as a military surgeon to the New Hampshire troops on the Fort Louisburg expedition to Cape Breton, Canada. This was a major British campaign against the French 
and ended with the taking of the French fort at the mouth of the St. Lawrence Waterway. Although the army suffered greatly in capturing Fort Louisbourg, Thornton's skill as a surgeon held his regiment's losses to only six men. Thornton returned home to Londonderry, where he began again practice medicine and remained in the local militia. In the 1750s, he was described as a tall, clear-eyed, and handsome man and charming, with storytelling ability that kept his friends enthralled for hours. When Hannah Jack married Dr. Matthew Thornton in 1760, she was 18 years old and he was 46. A story told in the history of New Boston, New Hampshire State, she was a beautiful young girl of 18 whom he has promised, when a child, to wait for and marry as a reward to her taking some disagreeable medicine. I hope that's true. That's so sweet. Over the next 14 years, five children were born to Dr. and Mrs. Thornton, four of whom grew to maturity, James, Andrew, Mary, and Matthew, and Hannah. In 1762, Dr. Thornton established a farm in New Boston, New Hampshire, remaining there eight years, then returning to Londonderry. 1768, he and other members of his family were granted the township, which still bears his name, Thornton, and he had interest in other towns as well. From about 1740 to 1779, oh, this two stories all by is a picture of, of his uh, um, house. Um, it was declared a National Historical Landmark in 1971. Under the royal government, Dr. Thornton had held the office of Justice of the Peace and Colonel of the Militia, but when the political crisis arrived, when that government in America was dissolved, Thornton took an active part in the overthrow of the royal government in New Hampshire. Dr. Thornton, at the age of 61, was too old to fight in the Revolutionary War, although he held the rank of colonel until 1779, but he readily served in the various provincial congresses. In early 1775, he was elected to the New Hampshire Provincial Congress at Exeter, where after a speech denouncing English, England's policies towards America, he won election as the body's president on May 17, 1775. As president of the Provincial Congress, Dr. Thornton addressed the following letter to the inhabitants of the colony of New Hampshire from Exeter, June 2, 1775. To the inhabitants of the colony of New Hampshire, friends and brethren, you must all be sensible that the affairs of America have at length come to a very affecting and alarming crisis. The horrors and distresses of a civil war, which till of late we only had had in contemplation, we now find ourselves obliged to realize. Painful beyond expression have been those scenes of blood and devastation which the barbarous cruelty of British troops have placed before our eyes. Duty to God, to ourselves, to posterity, ends forced by the cries of slaughtered innocents have urged us to take up arms in our own defense. <coughs> Excuse me. Such a day as this was never before known, either to us or to our fathers. You will give us leave, therefore, in whom you have reposed special confidence as your representative body to suggest a few things which call for the serious attention of everyone who has the true interest of America at heart. We would therefore recommend to the colony at large to cultivate that Christian union, harmony, and tender affection, which is the only foundation upon which our invaluable privileges can rest with any security or our public measures be pursued with the least prospect of success. 
We also recommend that a strict and inviolable regard be paid to the lives and judicious counsels of the late American Congress, and particularly considering that the experience of almost every day points out to us the dangers arising from the collection and movements of bodies of men who, notwithstanding, we willingly hope would promote the common cause and serve the interests of their country, yet are in danger of pursuing a track which may cross the general plane and and so disconcert those public measures which we view as the greatest importance. We must, in the most express and urgent terms, recommend it. There may be no movements of this nature, but by the direction of the committee of the respective towns or counties and those committees at the same time, advising with this Congress or with the Committee of Safety in the recess of Congress, where the exigency of the case is not plainly too pressing to leave room for such advice. We further recommend that the most industrious attention be paid to the cultivation of lands in American manufacture and their various branches, especially the linen and the woolen, and that the husbandry might be particularly managed with a view thereto, accordingly to the, that the farmer raised flax and increases flock of sheep to the extent of his ability. We further recommend a serious and steady regard to the rules of temperance, sobriety, and righteousness, and that those laws which have heretofore been our security and defense from the hand of violence may still answer all their former valuable purposes, though persons of vicious and corrupt minds would willingly take advantage from our present situation. In a word, we seriously and earnestly recommend the practice of that pure and undefiled religion which embalmed the memory of our pious ancestors as that alone upon which we can build a solid hope and confidence in the divine protection and favor without whose blessing all the measures of safety we have or can propose will end in our shame and disappointment. We could send that to uh, our Congress critters today, and we should. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but listening to us anymore. Oh, I know. I know. They wouldn't even understand it, for one thing. They wouldn't understand what the fuss was all about. It's sad. So, from this time on, the members of the Congress virtually ignored the remnant of the royal government in Portsmouth. Can we do that? (laughs) Can we just ignore the government? And they assumed the real authority for running the province. During this difficult period of transition from royal to provincial government, Dr. Thornton was the acknowledged leader of the government, acting as chairman of the Committee of Safety throughout the rest of 75. Dr. Thornton was asked to draft a plan of government for the colony after dissolution of the royal government. He headed the five-man committee that drafted New Hampshire's constitution. And upon its adoption on January 5, 1776, New Hampshire became the first of the original 13 states to create a government independent of Britain. In 1776, Thornton was elected the first Speaker of the New Hampshire House of Representatives, then became a member of the Council, and was appointed as a Superior Court Justice. He also continued to serve on various committees of the legislature and the Committee of Safety. Starting in the early summer of 76, the Continental Congress in Philadelphia made a series of decisions which culminated in the Declaration of Independence. Thornton was not a member of the Congress when the Declaration was adopted, but by law was permitted to sign the Declaration of Independence on behalf of New Hampshire on November 4, 1776, the day after he arrived in Philadelphia to begin the first of two terms in Congress. Nearly 18 months prior to his arrival in Philadelphia, Matthew Thornton had written a letter to Congress advocating complete independence from Great Britain. This was a view that was not universally supported at that time. However, by November 1776, it was the most unanimous viewpoint of the activists in the colony. 
in all the colonies. Thornton was an active member of the Continental Congress from November 76 through 77. He was selected to attend Congress again, but declined to attend due to poor health. For the rest of his life, Thornton attended to state duties. From 76 until 82, he served as Chief Justice of the Court of Common Pleas, the Superior Court of New Hampshire. The precious pressure of his many duties forced Thornton to end his medical practice in 79. He served six years on the Superior Court and as Chief Justice of the Court of Common Pleas, but in 1782 declined reappointment to these posts. In 1780, he moved to Merrimack, New Hampshire, where he purchased the confiscated estate of Loyalist Edward Goldstone Ruswich while in his 70s. I didn't, probably didn't say that right. Um, Lutwich, something like that. While in his 70s, from 84 to 87, Thornton was a member of the New Hampshire State Senate and from 85 to 86, a state counselor. Hannah Jack Thornton died on December 5, 1786, at the age of 44, and is buried in Thornton Cemetery, Merrimack, New Hampshire. With the death of his wife in 1786 and of his son in the following year, and with increasing infirmities, Thornton retired to his farm and wrote political articles for the newspapers even after the age of 80. Surrounded by his friends and family, he passed the remainder of his days in dignified repose. He became a gentleman farmer and operated the ferry on the Merrimack River, still known as Thornton's Ferry. Dr. Matthew Thornton died June 24, 1803, at the age of 89 years, while visiting at the home of his daughter, Hannah, in Newburyport, Massachusetts. His remains were brought back to Merrimack, and he it was interred in the little burial ground at Thornton's Ferry with only a modest tombstone to mark his resting place with the inscription, An Honest Man. Hannah is also buried there. Um... Mm, there you go. See, there's not much about Hannah. I couldn't even find all that much about uh, about Hannah Jack. Just what was written, you know, pretty much in in this article. Um, but uh, I, I would imagine, God, she they they knew each other. You know, he was her doctor, <laughs> and she she married him when he he waited. I love that story. And he was 38, old, 38 years older than him. I mean, he was 38 years older than her when they got married. Yeah, he was 46. She was 18. Wasn't that 28 years? Is that 28? Yeah. Yeah. 28 years. All right. Well, I don't know how much of... Catherine Moffat, Moffat Whipple will get to, but I'm sure it'll be quite enough because we have like 40 minutes left. Yeah. All right. Well, the last, the last on the list is William Whipple. He married Catherine Moffat, who was born in 1734 in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. The daughter of John Moffat, who came to America as a ship captain, engaged in the timber trade. So... Just as an aside, like we always talk about everybody swinging in the same circle. Mm. Well, these two doctors, they were they knew each other I'm positive. And that they they fit into the community that was taking care of medicine. When I read more of this, she's in the community that are shipbuilders, shipyard owners, shipping, that was a whole nother community. Right. 
About 1724, Don Moffat had married a young woman of means named Catherine Cutt, and through trade and land speculation, they became one of New Hampshire's wealthiest couples. Of their five children, four survived, three daughters, and one son. William Whipple, this is also from Women's History Box, William Whipple was born January 14, 1730, in Kittery, Maine, son of Captain William and Mary Cut Whipple. His mother was the daughter of Robert Cut, a wealthy and distinguished shipbuilder who established himself at Kittery and at his death was her handsome fortune. Young Whipple was educated at a common school until he went to sea as a cabin boy in his 14th year. William Whipple's great-grandfather, Robert Cutt, settled in the Portsmouth area prior to 1649 and established the Kittery Shipyard. His great-granduncle, John Cutt, was New Hampshire's first president, and his great-great-grandfather, Richard Cutt, was a member of the British Parliament from Essex in the 1650s. He was born in the Cutt Mansion, built about 1660, on the east bank of the Saskatchewan. River, a few rods from the water, and about a mile from the river's mouth. By the age of 21, Whipple commanded a ship of his own. For several years, he devoted himself to the merchant marine business, buying the Atlantic carrying wood to the West Indies, rum to Africa, and slaves back to Portsmouth. Whipple was very successful, and he acquired a considerable fortune. So. I mean, these people, they come from all different backgrounds to come together to unite us. This would never happen in this day and age, right? That never. Well, no. We are so divided right now, basically, because of the Bolsheviks, um, which, you know, that's what they do best is divide people. And, uh, it would be... Um, you have two sides coming together, but even even within the the sides, there's all you know. Well, trying to get conservatives to to uh, agree on anything is like trying to nail Jello to a tree, unless it's constitutional, and then we're pretty much all on board. But the Democrats, of course, um, the Bolsheviks, they have they have made it so that in the last thirty forty years. You follow the doctrine, or you're out. Um, and that's the difference between the left and the right, is we're independent thinkers and responsible for ourselves, whereas on the left it seems that there's the few that want to control everybody else and tell us what to do. And I don't abide by that at all. So, yeah, it would be real hard because, you know, we have all the all the craziness from George Soros and then you have the race baiters and, um, and the, the special oppressed victims groups that the left keeps coming up with. Whereas we just want to be left alone and <laughs> go about our business. Well, and this this is going to be really interesting. I'm watching the time, but this is a this is a fact. This ended up being a family scandal, this particular couple. Yeah. Yes. And yet he still signed the Declaration of Independence. Mm -hmm. Um, It's amazing. 
But for the show, we always had scandals and the difference is someone got punished. We don't punish people anymore. No, no, unless they're, you know, have an R after their name or they're a member of the Tea Party. Yep. Okay, so... <sighs> All right. Back to Catherine Moffat Whipple. Now, the Moffats and the Whipples know each other. So, yeah. just, and unless you get it in context, you get confused. Because when I first read this, I was confused too. All right. Um, so, he was born in the Cut Mansion, um, her future husband, William. And at the age of 21, he commanded a ship of his own. And that tells you what he, he acquired a considerable fortune. At age 29, he gave up the seafaring life, sold his boat, and moved to Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Now, they're all um, congealing in Portsmouth. They're from other places in New Jersey and New York, and they're all coming together in Portsmouth. There, in partnership with his brother, Whipple established himself as a merchant, and that venture also was also prosperous. As a merchant, he became a victim of the British trade restrictions of the 1760s, and an early adherent to the Patriot cause in Portsmouth. In 1763, Catherine Moffat's only brother, Samuel, married and moved into the mansion John Moffat had built for his son. At first, Samuel and his young wife, Sarah Catherine, did well. I like that name. Mm-hmm. The foreplanning of their home gave it an impressive entrance, one well-suited to lavish entertaining. They traveled through town in a four-wheeled carriage, and their friends and, and Samuel's business associates were from the first families of the colony. Unfortunately, Samuel Moffat's business affairs did not go well. He undertook several shipping ventures, including an ill-fated voyage to Africa to obtain slaves, and with his brother-in-law, Peter Livius. Livius. When most of the enslaved cargo of the ship, Triton, died during the passage to the West Indies, Livius, 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 I'm never going to get that right, declared that his share of the cost of the voyage was a loan rather than an investment and sued Samuel for his losses. It was this lawsuit that finally caused Samuel's financial ruin. Samuel fled the colony aboard the ship Diana in the company of his cousin, William Whipple. The Dutch held island of St. Eunice's. Eustatius, where Samuel was able to escape his predators and work to rebuild his fortune. In a bold move designed to thwart the business, I'm not going to get it. No, I can't say it. Livius. Livius. Effort. Moss had sued Samuel for the amount he had advanced to his son to establish his left and top business. John had never transferred the deed to the house to Samuel, so it was Samuel's movable goods that were sold at auction to satisfy his debt to his father. What's this guy's first name? I'm never getting it. Peter. Though frustrated in his attempts to sue Samuel directly, was determined to get his money out of somebody and has found a law of this province made between 40 and 50 years ago, which says that every master or commander of a ship that carries any inhabitant out of the providence without getting bonds in the secretary's office shall be subject to a fine and pay all the damages arising thereby. 
know, again, there's nothing new under the sun, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can sue anybody for anything. Mm-hmm. And this is what the founding fathers didn't want to happen. Right. Well, because, yeah, because in England, especially, um, you know, Ireland and England and Scotland and Wales, petitioning, you went before the king against your neighbor. You petitioned against your neighbor for whatever, you know, and it was up to the crown to decide, you know, until, um, well, they they kept at it for, you know, into the 1700s. But it, it was... You know, petitioning was was uh, petitioning the king to take you know to see who was who was in the right and who was to you know get the um, get the the problem taken care of. You know, like one neighbor was pig got killed by the other neighbor, then you know the king decided if the neighbor that killed the pig had to buy the other neighbor a new pig of equal or better value. So. That that's what all this and and it it got to the point where people were doing the, this because um, they were upset with their neighbor or somebody in the community. I mean that's a lot what the Salem witch trials were all about. Was uh, there were families who wanted property, certain property, and um, it was a, a very contentious uh, and uh, situation in the area. And so, you know, have your kids point which. So they had to, you know, work on on this nonsense, and that's what the founding fathers, and a lot of them, you know, had had studied law. And they went, hmm, you know, this is kind of, this is getting out of hand. Well, that was the first thing they had to do to get rid of the Republicans, get rid of God. Second thing they had to do is get rid of anything, and as we speak, ladies and gentlemen, they're tearing down statues all across the country because they want to get rid of our history. I know. And the third thing is to make the judiciary the most powerful entity in America. Right. Okay, so he charged that William Whipple, as commander of the ship of Di- of the ship Diana, in which Samuel fled from the colonies, had subjected himself to the flaw. When Whipple returned to Portsmouth, he was charged at finding a stop. He was charged, chagrined, chagrined, at finding a stop put to his business for where he and his brother, brother to go on with any other affairs. Peter might keep attaching their business. The brothers dissolved their partnership so that Joseph would be free to carry on, and William thereafter devoted himself to public service. In May 1769, Sarah Catherine Moffat finally left Portsmouth to join her husband Samuel in St. Eustace. I know, I'm going to kill that too. <laughs> Taking their son Betty, Mrs. Sparks, the two new Negroes, and boy James with her. She left her two other children with her sister-in-law, Catherine Moffat, who split her time between caring for her ailing, ailing mother at their parents' house and caring for their niece and nephew at her brother's mansion. After the death of her mother, Catherine and her father moved into the newer and more grand residence. A year later, Catherine Moffat quietly married her first cousin, William Whipple. The couple did not make the union public until well after people began to notice that she was pregnant. Mm Mm-hmm. 
At which point, William Whipple joined the Moffat household, bringing with him an impressive array of sophisticated furniture. In 1773, the couple lost their only child, William Jr., at the age of 11 months. They raised their niece and nephew, Mary and John Tufton Moffat, as their own as their own until they were grown. Due to John Moffat, this is um, Catherine's father, due, due to John Moffat's failing eyesight and advancing deafness, he relied on his nephew and son-in-law, William Whipple, to take care of the place and to help him with his business affairs. As William became increasingly embroiled in the revolutionary cause of these responsibilities were assumed by Catherine. Yeah, right. That's right. We didn't do anything back then. No. It starts me. It just oh, it enrages me. One of America's finest Georgian mansion, a house overlooks the house overlooks portions of the waterfront, and it has extensive flower gardens. The Whipples lived there their entire married life. Um, and a Georgian mansion is a style and design of colonial mansions with spaces opulent, expensive, and elegant. Classical architecture influences from Rome and Greece. Symmetrical proportions with imposing grandeur, square, symmetrical shape, with imposing columns, usually white. And this is like the kind of the way the White House looks when you're looking at it. Paneled central front door embellished with decorative designs over the door. Windows with shutters and small rectangular window panes. Paired chimneys and a pitched roof with minimal roof overhang. So it was like a big square box. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very pretty. Their their mansion was very, very it I mean, there's a picture on the site there and it's it is Yeah. I know, I was looking at it. It looks it's almost the same design as the White House. Right, and it's got the widow's walk on top. Yeah. You know, which you see on so many of the, the coast houses, um, where the the uh wives of the the seafaring gentlemen and sailors would would go up to the top of their houses um, to watch for the ships to come in. The widow's walk, which is kind of a sad Uh-oh. for it, but you know a lot of them didn't come home. Yep. Um. Because we're coming to the end, and I want to see. If they have anything about when she died. Mm. So she took on a lot, in other words. She took on somebody else's family, and then she had to take on her father's family business because her husband was going to the con- uh, congressional committee. Yeah. So, I know I had something in here, but... Um, Okay, so he died from heart condition on November 28th at the age of 54. And when William died, his wife Catherine was devastated. She was left without a husband for the first rank, who was of the first rank, who was esteemed by the entire community. Her father, very weak and feeble, still provided for her, but she was aware that at 92 years of age, he could hardly live much longer. In 1779, she had convinced her father to convey to her a farm on the outskirts of town at the Plains. In 1784, Catherine persuaded her father to bequeath her the right to live in Portsmouth Mansion house for six years. He did so. 
but in his will entailed the house to her brother's eldest living son and his heirs. Samuel's wife, Sarah Catherine Moffat, received nothing, but John Moffat did make requests to all of her children. But she, but John, but she did make requests to all of her children. Um, uh, Catherine Moffat Whipple died on November 22nd 1821 in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. All right. Well, that was the founding father. So she did get the little farm, but she lost everything else. Yeah. Because he was young, 54. She had no, I mean, she's a, a, how old is she? She's like in her 20s now. Yeah. That's not this one. No. Was it? No, that was the last one we did. Yeah, he was born in 34, so he was in her 40s in the right. 70s. But still, he had he had an unforeseen death. Well, and he was one of the he you you can read more. There's a lot more to this this article. We're just running out of time here. Um, if you want to read more about him, he was quite an impressive individual too. Absolutely. And uh, he, uh, he, he had his problems, but um, it says he, he was quietly determined, uh, his was a quietly determined war effort. He fought not only on the battlefield, but in the courts and congresses during a revolutionary time. His letters are witness of his ever alert, courageous, and encouraging spirit. No member of the Congress worked harder or contributed more to the founding of the United States. His reward was not fame. It was helping to create the dem- greatest democracy ever known. And um, you, want, you might want to read more about him. Uh, it, it's really great. And you think here she was, um, you know, supporting him, knowing that he had a noose around his neck, as, you know, the rest of the family, and that she could lose any everything at a drop of a hat. And she took in, you know, her his her brother's children and raised them and uh, lost hers. And cared for both parents. And cared for both parents. And I have a feeling John Moffat was rather a difficult man. Of course, you know, he was the, the generation from the 1600s, and that was a whole different mentality. So... Um, it, very interesting people. Very, I mean, I, you have to say, oh my goodness, these people were—they um, really—they were very interesting in in how they dealt with things and you know how they came to to the uh, um, not the fame but the infamy, infamy, yeah, that they they had. And it was a tumultuous time for sure. Nobody knew what was going to happen, and and uh, so many of these wives, you know, he was on the battlefield as well as in Congress. And, you know, so. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we're coming towards the end of the show, and I just want to say, please go to uncooperativeradio.com. Look at the three shows. The only show that you have to listen from episode one is The Patriots Pub because it's in chronological order and you won't know what the heck's going on. 
uh, to history lesson. All of these shows contain history, history and politics. The Patriots Pub does not contain history or politics. It just contains history. And this is the only weapon we have right now. We live, everyone says it's an interesting time. That's a curse. That's not a blessing. That's a Chinese curse, which means we live in disgusting times. And, yes, we live in disgusting times. Yes. And the only thing that we can do is educate ourselves and use that as a weapon against them before real weapons are used. So go to uncooperativeradio.com, uncooperativeradio.com. Also go to um, that Amazon.com, look up Susan Francis, F-R-A-N-C-E-S, Bonner, and my books will come up. I have three children's books there, and I have a, a, a uh, e-book. So all the children's books are e-books. My main one is an e-book. Do not buy the, the cover. The, they, these people ripped me, me off, and they already got rid of my contract. You couldn't even buy one if you tried. So go to Amazon.com, look up Susan Francis Bonner, and you'll see all my books. And... Deb takes us out all the time. Okay. Well, we are going to uh, say thank you for stopping by. Hope you enjoyed the show. And, wow, we've had five Mondays in a row. We're, we're on a roll here. Hopefully we'll be back next Monday <laughs> same time with another woman to introduce you to. And, as always, pray for our soldiers, our kids in uniform, and the ones who have come home. Don't forget them. Get a chance, go to your local VA hospital and sit down and visit some veterans and and uh, make sure everything's going on as it should be in the hospital because uh, apparently Congress is trying, but, you know, how things go with that. Um, and pray for our troops that are out there in, in uh, nasty places and uh, our hearts and minds are with those um, in Manchester right now. Another dastardly deed an explosion there. Um, and you stay safe this week. Enjoy your week. And come on back and and uh, visit with us again next Monday. Y'all have a good week. Stay safe. Night. <laughs> <laughs>